Let's Talk Bitcoin is one of the most popular podcasts about cryptocurrencies. Adam B. Levine started it after three other podcasts he started did not get the traction he had hoped for. Adam parlayed the success of Let's Talk Bitcoin into a network of podcasts, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network, which also includes one of my favorite shows, Epicenter. I'll actually be having the host of Epicenter Bitcoin, Brian Fabian Crane, on the show in the near future. I'm really looking forward to that. In today's episode, Adam from Let's Talk Bitcoin joins me on a discussion of so many topics. We talk about the culture around cryptocurrencies, the art of podcasting, blockchain scalability, ICOs. The conversation around ICOs was particularly exciting. If you've been listening to recent episodes, you have heard interviews with companies who have done ICOs. You have heard my varying degrees of skepticism of those different ICOs. Some ICO companies are now facing legal ramifications for their token sales, and Adam and I have some disagreement over whether these ICO companies deserve much sympathy. It was a debate that I enjoyed, and I hope to have Adam back on the show in the future for more debates. Before we get to the episode, I want to briefly mention SoftwareDaily.com. Software Daily is a place where people can post software projects, get feedback, and find collaborators. We'd love to see what you're building. If you have an open source application or a side project that you've been tinkering with or an academic computer science paper that you want to get feedback on, come to Software Daily, post your project, and if it's especially interesting, we'll send you a Software Engineering Daily hoodie or a t-shirt or mug, or we might even have you on the podcast to discuss what you're building. So check out softwaredaily.com. And with that, let's get to this episode with Adam B. Levine. Adam B. Levine is the host of Let's Talk Bitcoin and the CEO at Tokenly. Adam, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. It's very good to be here. I've been a fan of Let's Talk Bitcoin for several years, from the earliest days that I started discussing this topic on my own podcast. So it has served as something of an inspiration for some of the formats and the paths that I've traveled with Software Engineering Daily. How did you start podcasting about Bitcoin, and why did you start podcasting about Bitcoin? It's a fun question. Let's Talk Bitcoin was actually the fourth Bitcoin podcast that I started. I tell this story every once in a while, but I haven't told it too often, so I don't think there will be too much repetition here. I think it was uh, 2011 or 2012, I started my first Bitcoin podcast, and it wasn't specifically about Bitcoin. It was more about disruptive technology, and that one didn't really take off, and I did, I think, three or four episodes of that. And then in the summer of 20, maybe it was the spring of 2012, I started an, another show called BitTalk that I did under a pseudonym. And that one got a little bit more traction, but it still ultimately imploded when I then wound up moving about six months later. And my partner, who I'd been doing it with, also got really busy. He was actually the original founder of the Bitcoin subreddit, who then would later go on to give it over to uh, Thamos. <laughs> he was a very young, very passionate, uh, ideological libertarian, as a lot of kind of the early adopters were. So that project exploded too. And then I did my third Bitcoin podcast in uh, the spring of 2013, right before I started Let's Talk Bitcoin. And I did a show under my own name called The Daily Bitcoin Show. 
And the idea was to pump out, you know, an episode every day because there was so much stuff that was happening. It was one of the kind of first bubbles that we had seen in Bitcoin. And certainly I was very excited about it along with other people. It was also kind of the first time that we really started to see people who are non-technical in nature starting to get really excited and interested about it because especially early on, but even so we see it today, you know, the price has kind of always acted like a, a beacon that attracts people who may have heard of the technology, but didn't really care enough to buy into it. And so the price pushes up and people start to think, oh, I'm you know, stupid for having missed this opportunity. And then they educate themselves a little more and become involved. And you know, in more recent years, mostly they just buy a bunch, <laughs> it seems like. But in the early days, that was kind of the thought. So I did that show, the Daily Bitcoin show with two hosts for five days and we recorded every day and I edited all of the shows as comprehensively as I possibly could. And I kind of uh, viewed that whole experience as my feats of strength to sort of demonstrate to people the level of quality that uh, we could put out with basically no resources and you know no professional sort of background in any of the cryptocurrency stuff, but to put out a professional polished you know quality product that um, would be really useful and most importantly, really information dense. In the early days, content was not dense. It was either too dense, like on forums and stuff like that. And that's where I was getting all my information in the early days. Or it was someplace like there was another show that was on at the time, I think called The Bitcoin Show from a guy named Bruce Wagner out of New York. And he was super non-technical and really just cared about kind of the investment use case and sort of the that sort of thing. And his podcast wound up blowing up in, I believe it was the January of 2013, right before I started my third show. And that implosion, what actually happened is he had been highly recommending a Bitcoin wallet. Uh, and this was back in the days when the easiest way to use cryptocurrency was to have a custodial web wallet. So I don't remember what the exact one was called, but the long and the short of it is that he and many of the people who kind of were his fans, uh, wound up putting a bunch of money into this web wallet. The web wallet either was hacked or there was an exit scam, depending on who you ask. And that sort of was the end for him. And then some other stuff came out about him that kind of further cemented that he would not be coming back. So I was looking at this market and I see that there's this gigantic hole in it for actual you know, like information that's accessible to normal people who are interested conceptually in these topics, but might not have the technical depth to really want to dig into the forums. And also, this was a time when the forums were about as hostile as they could possibly be. It was, you know, after some attention had started to come and really it was difficult to have conversations. There was a lot of newbie filtering, stuff like that. So my fourth Bitcoin podcast, Let's Talk Bitcoin, I started because the daily Bitcoin show was actually so successful and we immediately jumped into such a kind of meaningful audience and had kind of so much positive feedback that I started getting investment offers. And in the process of attempting to accept one of those investment offers to try and make the you know show into something that would be larger and sustainable, I offered equity to my partners. And I offered uh, to my co-hosts and I was doing all the work. They were showing up and, uh, you know, doing the thing. And I was actually running the show. It had been my idea. I'd recruited them, yada, yada. So I offered them each 20% equity. And that <laughs> basically led to the complete explosion of that project where uh, it, you know, they both wound up quitting because they felt like I was treating them unfairly. And so then I started Let's Talk Bitcoin. <laughs> and Let's Talk Bitcoin came about in terms of the hosts because I had previously worked with uh, Stephanie Murphy, one of the other hosts of Let's Talk Bitcoin. She had actually done our intro for the Daily Bitcoin show. She was a voiceover artist and uh, I had listened to her show Pork Therapy, which was sort of like a libertarian 
you know, talk show for a while and uh, liked what she was doing and, you know, wanted and I got her to uh, do an intro for us. And then after the kind of show exploded, I was like, well, you know, who do I actually want to pull in? And I thought it would be really great to have her on because she's super intelligent and has a great and slightly different perspective. She's also a really hardcore ideological libertarian. And while I am libertarian leaning myself, certainly in almost every way one can imagine, I, you know, kind of play closer towards the middle of the field. Um, and I don't take such ideological positions because I find them to be counterproductive for most things I'm trying to do. Andreas Antonopoulos got involved because he and I had talked about him actually being a host on the daily Bitcoin show, but uh, it wound up that he was traveling too much and we didn't really have time to get it going. And so I wound up having him on as the guest on the final episode of uh, the daily Bitcoin show, where he talked about kind of the disaster rat's nest that was the Mt. Gox kind of security protocol and how badly it looked like that was going to end. And, you know, we would then go on to find out years later that it did end badly and it was about as bad as it seemed. So that's how I wound up getting into Let's Talk Bitcoin. It was an overnight success after, you know, three prior failed attempts that all failed for various reasons. But that time I got the timing right. I got the, you know, the crew right and just ran as fast as I could and I never stopped. That mirrors my experience with podcasting. I have been involved with three podcasts before Software Engineering Daily, two of which I started, and none of which were particularly successful for me personally. And, you know, the idea of starting a daily podcast as a way of creating a Sisyphean slope to just climb every single day to work out your podcasting muscles is something that is a great idea for anybody who is looking to start a podcast. I heartily endorse that strategy because it's very easy to make a daily podcast if i mean in terms of once you get on that treadmill and you figure out how the treadmill operates and you get the muscle memory it's really not that hard and it gives you license to talk to a lot of interesting people and it lets you again work out those interview muscles and you build out you know you you build some routine and so i'm sure that that was a muscle building experience for you. So in my experience, podcasting about cryptocurrencies, podcasting, it's great for capturing the broad narratives of cryptocurrencies. And it can be less good for articulating the deeply technical subjects. Like I've done a few, how does Bitcoin work at a deep technical level episodes? It can be hit or miss. Mostly, I mean, it's it's hard to do. I mean, I think it's as as a companion to reading something like Mastering Bitcoin, you can do a highly technical episode about cryptocurrencies, but in general, it's probably better to stick to the broad narratives of cryptocurrencies for the podcasting format. And that's fine because the broad narratives are so tremendously interesting and the personalities are so interesting. But how do you feel about that? When it comes to cryptocurrencies, what are the limitations of the podcasting format? I really don't think there are any limitations of the podcasting format. There are certainly some conversations that are more difficult to have in this format than perhaps in others that might have a visual component. But it really just depends on who you're talking to, right? And that's always been a challenge in podcasting because the early mission for Let's Talk Bitcoin was to create you know, a platform where people who are non-technical in nature could understand these kind of more deeper and philosophical things. And I think that in many ways we've accomplished that, but we accomplished it by educating our listeners to the point where they're no longer new users. 
And that's a problem that you face both with your audience because the content that they need changes. The content for that older you know listeners actually get value from is different than the content that newer listeners get value from. And it's also hard to create even static episodes a lot of times that reflect you know like this is what Bitcoin is because that kind of is is a moving metric. And we still we have a, a episode of uh, Let's Talk Bitcoin. I think it was 61 that's still pinned to the top of my SoundCloud page that is, you know, like this is what Bitcoin is. And at the time it was totally accurate. But now I think it probably has some meaningful inaccuracies in it because the thinking has changed. So it's a moving target with all of this stuff. But I don't think there's anything inherently unapproachable about technical topics. It just requires you to have people on the conversation who can both provide the technical ex- expertise. And then on the other hand, you have people who can act as listener surrogates and uh, ask those kind of obvious questions that actually help to illustrate it a lot. And they even help the more advanced listeners too, because they reinforce effectively the understanding by analogizing it in a different way. So this stuff is challenging, but for technical audiences, especially like yourself, uh, like yours, you know, I think that uh, what you say about in your about page is pretty apt, which is that, you know, you should expect to understand programming like 1% better or developing 1% better. Uh, after each episode. And that's kind of how I feel about Let's Talk Bitcoin too, is it's like, it's not like there are any episodes that are, you know, so important that they constitute most of the understanding. It really is just a gradual conversation. And really, it's been a way for people to learn along with me. And as my opinions continue to develop and other hosts too, of course, you know, so it's all perspective, right? Nobody knows kind of what the elephant actually looks like. We're all just feeling around with our own perspective and then sharing those results. And that's why I kind of look at everything as an experiment too, is because lacking best practices, all we have are first practices and first practices are quite often wrong, but they still work better than, you know, first practices that don't work at all. <laughs> and now I doubt that people are tuning in to hear about building a podcast network, but I personally am curious because Software Engineering Daily for me was well, not just my first serious foray into podcasting, but I was thinking of it as here's a way to learn a little bit about business firsthand. Like, how do I build a little podcast business? Let's see where this takes me. And there is a fork in the road that you reach as a podcaster, and there are many podcasts out there that, that reach this fork in the road where you get to a point where it's the question is, how do I scale this? Because you, you end up being a personality business or you end up being a business that is limited in scope to a single podcast. And the question arises, do I start a podcast network? And, you know, there are advantages to starting a podcast network. It looks from the outside like, oh, maybe this is a way to build a conglomerate and, a, and you get economies of scale across that conglomerate. But when I've delved into it, it looks like those economies of scale are oftentimes illusory and building a podcast network can be a dubious proposition because one of the podcasts ends up having the preponderance of the the profit shares being a result of and the other podcasts end up being laggards. But I know that's not always the case because I guess Gimlet, for example, has been a very successful podcast network. I think NPR you could think of as a very successful podcast network. So I don't know. I'm fascinated by the economics of the podcast network. What has been your observation of the podcast network business model? I mean, the short version is that it's very difficult to accomplish anything commercial when you don't go into it with a reasonable amount of funding. That's probably the biggest problem that I see with networks. It certainly was the biggest problem that we had with LTBN while I was operating it. 
And it's a problem that uh, companies that come from radio first, like NPR or even Gimlet to a certain extent, since there are personalities uh, that came from radio first, you know, like that's a major advantage. And if you look at the popular podcasts that are out there, perhaps you're an exception, but most of the ones that are really commercially viable are ones that start on radio first and then also transition into podcasting. So it's not really a fair comparison. Maybe I need to go into radio. Well, I mean, radio, again, it's like it's you know, like the game with all of this stuff is that the very, very top, you know, cream of the crop wind up making the vast majority of the actual revenue that comes in. And so it makes it difficult to be small in the space. I can tell you, you know, I don't know if it's a good example or a bad example, but the reason why I started the network wasn't to make money. It was because I wanted more Bitcoin podcasts out there. And what I saw very early on was that uh, it was unsustainable for a new podcast to start because Let's Talk Bitcoin had basically already eaten the market. And it wasn't that we were huge. You know, we only had 10,000, you know, 12,000 listeners, something like that. But relative to the available market, everybody else was in, you know, the 200, 500 listens range, something like that. So when we did the network, really the point was to take the existing podcast feed, the subscriber feed that we had, and to allow that to then be a kind of a springboard for new podcasts that would come in that we felt like could really add value to the space, but we didn't think would survive starting with that zero to one kind of problem, right? We felt like we could solve that initial listener base. And from that perspective, we did. We were a great launch pad for many shows, including shows that would go on to be actually commercially viable. But the problem with and this, this may be more specific to cryptocurrency than it is to other places, but it's not unique, is that the, pro the people who want to give you money in a business sense, a lot of times aren't companies who you would want to accept money from. So you have the advantage of being able to kind of talk to companies that want to hire and things like that. Whereas we were always, you know, approached by people who are doing altcoins or tokens or all of these other basically exploitative things where the whole reason that they're going to give you as a podcast or podcast network money is because they're then going to take more money back from your audience for something that probably is pretty dubious. And early on, before there were ICOs, this was what essentially gambling, right? Like all the places that wanted to advertise were casinos because casinos make tons of money because they essentially churn suckers into money. So that's that was always the issue that we had. And I just today uh, turned down a uh, interview from a project that I'm a huge fan of that I won't mention here for, again, conflict reasons that I'm an advisor on. And, you know, like I can't even do an interview with them on Let's Talk Bitcoin, much less accept them as a sponsor, because at a policy level, we've decided that it's unsafe for us to do any sort of content generation with companies that have ICO and potentially have illegal financing, uh, you know, issues in their future. So that's the problem is that there's a mismatch between kind of the people who you want to give you money or you would accept money from and actually want to advertise their products versus the people who have it in cryptocurrency. And that means that the places that get big tend to be places that have very little in the way of kind of ethical responsibility about this stuff. And the places that, you know, don't do that, don't have a lot of money. So that was kind of how LTB and LTBN operated for a long time was we built a platform. We didn't even have contracts with any of the people. We just said, you know, if you can make it through our editorial process, then and that means that you deserve to be on the platform. For a long time, we ran a rewards program also that actually paid uh, a cryptographic token called LTB coin to people who created content and then also to uh, smaller amounts to people who consumed content as a way to kind of incentivize the whole ecosystem. That worked pretty well, but the eco we did it so early. We started in 2014 that it was too early and the ecosystem was not at all ready for what we were doing. And that's actually why I started my company Tokenly is because uh, we needed to build essentially all of the infrastructure in order to power that sort of token use case, which then led us down a whole series of other rabbit holes that I won't even go into. <laughs>
I want to get to those rabbit holes, actually, but I want to talk a little bit more about podcasting out of my own self-interest, if for no other reason. You take something like Epicenter, the Epicenter podcast, which is part of the LTB network. Epicenter is an amazing show, and the hosts are so intelligent and so well-researched. I'm, I'm having Brian on the show in the near future, and I, I can't wait to talk to him because I've listened to him talk for for hours on end, and he's just such a great host as well because he's, he's very much restrained in his, you know, he doesn't try to make himself sound smart. He's, he's totally fine asking naive questions and really focusing on educating the listener, and he does a great job. And But it, it's just funny because you hear these podcasts like Epicenter or Let's Talk Bitcoin, and I know because I'm deeply in, involved in the podcast advertising space that it's kind of an inefficient market because you have this media format that people are intimately engaged with in their high net worth individuals. Like I talked to my friend Glenn Rubenstein, who's an, an expert in podcast advertising. And, you know, I talked to him about this a lot. And it's just it's just funny because it's almost perverse how undervalued podcast advertising is because of that intimacy. And it, you can get these situations where you have 12,000 to 25,000 high net worth individuals who are listening to a podcast. It doesn't even matter that the podcast is about Bitcoin or the podcast is about cryptocurrencies or what the podcast is about. But if you can target that vertical, that inventory should be worth money. But it is, it's hard to sell podcast ads and it's weird to sell podcast ads and it's such an ill-defined market. I don't know how much longer that's going to last, how much longer it's going to be ill-defined or why there are such bottlenecks to that market developing. But I don't know, it's always struck me as perverse and it seems like something that's going to grow eventually. I mean, that's personally why I got involved in this business is because it seems like an underdeveloped market. But I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Why is the podcast advertising market so weird and underdeveloped? So the, the reason, in my opinion, why uh, a lot of these problems are here is because this is all sort of based off of the radio model, actually. We did an experiment putting uh, most of the LTB network onto the radio down in Southern California. We actually paid for airtime on a network that allowed us to do that to kind of see how oh, it went. Oh, no way. Yeah, we were on for three months. We actually pushed the whole network through. We were on just about every day, and uh, I think it was 7 or 8 o'clock at night, uh, like I said, in Southern California. Anyways, what I learned about that was that the way that they track stats in radio is they tell you, here's how big our broadcast radius is. <laughs> here's how many people live in that broadcast radius. And some percentage of those people might be listening to your thing at any given time. And that is literally <laughs> the way that they tell. So that's why nobody, nobody real, you know, advertises on the radio anymore is because it's impossible to quantify those ads. And so most of the time when you listen to something, you're hearing essentially government sponsored ads because nobody else has the metrics. And it's the same thing to kind of a lesser extent in the podcast world. Numbers tend to be smaller, but they can be quantified. We actually, as part of our rewards program, did a project called Magic Words which unsurprisingly, a podcaster would say a magic word during the episode. Uh, people who listen to it would go to letstalkbitcoin.com and type in the magic word, and then they would earn LTB coin rewards in the next distribution relative to you know how everybody else did during the same time. So uh, that was a way that we were able to start to actually validate that not only were people downloading, but they were listening. And so we, we kind of started going down the, those paths. But 
just the reality of it is, is that it's an awkward space. You're totally right. My big solution to all of this, you know, in theory, I actually created a product last year. Yeah, I guess we started working on it in 2016 called Token FM. And it is essentially the answer to that problem, in my opinion. It does allow the sponsored model, but it also allows effectively a Patreon type model as well. But it actually also delivers the audio content, right? So you can essentially have people get early access to your content if they, you know, subscribe to you on a monthly basis or pay you on a per episode basis or whatever. And the shtick is that, you know, a, a user signs up with their credit card, you know, gets uh, pays $7 a month, they get $7 worth of credit, and then effectively 80% of that passes through to anyone whose content they consume. And uh, content creators price their own content, and there's lots of complexity built into it. But it's that connection of taking the super fan of the thing and allowing them to give you a dollar or two dollars or three dollars a month. And like that with numbers, you know, of just 10,000, you know, listeners, suddenly it's actually really viable to do something like this. And there are other kind of kinds of advantages you can build in as well. We kind of went down this whole rabbit hole with this thing called token controlled access, which is the idea that if a user proves to a service that they own a particular cryptocurrency address, that service can then look at the blockchain and say, what does this user actually have? in that account. And based on whatever the contents are, they can give them access within a system to it. So if we're just thinking about cryptocurrency as money, then that doesn't make a lot of sense. But in my world, we're creating tokens and, and helping build things that like create a token, an artist creates a token that represents a season pass to the next 12 months of their podcast, right? That token, because it's actually on a blockchain, isn't something that's tied to me specifically. If I wanted to sell it to someone or give it to someone else or lend it to someone off chain temporarily, I could do that and it wouldn't have to involve necessarily the platform uh, or the artist that issued it to me in the first place. So the problem, in my opinion, just again to summarize, is that the advertising model itself does not work very well. It's all about figuring out how to monetize your customer base or your listener base. And that's not really a good use of the listener base. A good use of the listener base is to say, hey, if you want to not become the product of this show, then help us out and you know pay a dollar or two a month or whatever. And I think that as time goes on, we'll see networks that develop that effectively let users pay $5 a month or whatever. And that money just gets split out based on how they consume content. So advertising itself, I just don't see how you fix that outside of, I mean, changing human nature. Hmm. Okay. Well, I could keep going down that track for a while, but I guess we should talk some about cryptocurrencies. You started this company Tokenly, and this is to allow people to create tokens more easily. So I think you started this before the ERC-20 token. So this was a separate way for people to make their own tokens. Explain what Tokenly is. Well, so yeah, so to be clear, then there is, it's slightly complex. So there are layer one protocols, right? So something like Bitcoin. And then there are layer two protocols that embed inside of Bitcoin. So it's a separate protocol that allows special messages to be put inside of normal Bitcoin transactions that can then be essentially read by another daemon and can form a secondary ledger on top of that. We call these meta coins. The first one, the first of these layers to come out was called MasterCoin, now called Omni back in 2013. And the second one to come out, which was an offshoot of MasterCoin because there were all sorts of problems with the development of that. And this was a slightly less 
icky project um, called uh, Counterparty. And then about the same time Counterparty came out, so this was a way to build tokens on top of Bitcoin. About the same time Counterparty came out, we were reading the white paper from Vitalik you know, on the Ethereum project. That was in December, November of 2013. And so, yeah, Ethereum itself wouldn't come out in any sort of working form for some time after that. So getting back to what Tokenly does and what Tokenly did. So once we had Counterparty and MasterCoin to a lesser extent, it became actually quite easy to create tokens. Creating tokens was not the hard part any longer. And that was why we were able to create LTB coin without building hardly any of this stuff. But what we found was that even things like wallets simply didn't exist in usable formats for users of these tokens. So you had kind of this nascent Bitcoin infrastructure starting up and there was maybe 40% of the components that you needed. And then you looked at tokens built on top of Bitcoin or anywhere else for that matter. And it was maybe 1% of the infrastructure that was actually needed for it to be useful. So the first thing that we built with Tokenly was actually a mass distribution engine, we called it, um, called BitSplit, that made it so that when we had you know 6,000 people who needed to receive weekly amounts of LTB coin, part of the rewards program, we could calculate that, have the website automatically set it up based on the rewards program information, and automatically send out and monitor those transactions to make sure that they all made it into the blocks and that they all actually got out there without someone having to sit there and manually send one token, you know, tokens to one person at a time, which was basically the only other option. We would then go on to create an entirely on-chain auctioning system that allowed people to bid with LTB coin on-chain, which was our rewards token, and to buy other tokens like uh, sponsor tokens, which were redeemable for one, uh, you know, one sponsorship on an episode. And then we went on to build a vending machine system called SwapBot that was... Jeffrey, do you, are you familiar with the old Satoshi Dice approach? I believe that is like you make a transaction and it's like a very stupid smart contract that you're engaging with through that transaction and you randomly are gambling for some money is that right like it's 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 kind of a smart contract on the bitcoin blockchain that lets you gamble a server-based smart contract is pretty much the way to think about it so the idea here was and it was a really cool idea at the time they did it was it an actually an on-chain gambling facility or was it it was it was centralized in a, in some place well so it's centralized in that the logic behind the actions lives on a server so that's actually important in a lot of ways because it means you can interface with things that don't exist on a blockchain, whereas blockchain-centric solutions require every piece of information to be on the blockchain, and that can be difficult. So in the early days, though, we didn't think that. So you color a coin to be associated with a Satoshi Dice transaction, and then the Satoshi Dice server picks up that transaction and interfaces with it. No, you're overcomplicating it. Let me back up and re-explain okay, this Okay, all bit. right. Sorry to so, interrupt you. No, no worries at all. Like I said, this is uh, slightly nuancy. So the deal with Satoshi Dice, Satoshi Dice was created by Eric Voorhees, who would go on to found Shapeshift and a bunch of other companies. The basic mode of operation was that it was a gambling project where uh, users would send Bitcoin to particular addresses. Each address was a static address that had a set amount of odds associated with it, right? So you'd send to one and it would give, you know, it'd have a one in 20 odds. You send to another, it'd have one in 10 odds, etc. So the only way that you actually needed to, the only thing you needed to do in order to gamble with Satoshi Dice was to literally send Bitcoin to the appropriate address 
And then it would do the uh, provable gambling by, you know, getting a hash from the next block that would come up. And then it would return, if you won, it would return the money to the same address that you actually had sent the initial money from. So I looked at that and I said, wow, this is such a great idea to actually solve advertising was the original idea behind it was we could take this same concept where you just have an address that if it receives something and it fits within this existing logic structure, then it can perform an action on chain as a result. And so the idea here originally actually was for this thing we called Windows Shop back in 2013 to make it so that advertisements on websites, visual advertisements, instead of being billboards that direct you to a merchant store or something like that would effectively become a window into someone else's website where you could perform the transaction right there. So we built uh, SwapBot to support this. And SwapBot was the same concept of Satoshi Dice applied to basically a vending machine e-commerce type system. And users would, early users like Spells of Genesis, which was one of the kind of early collectible blockchain card games, would load up these addresses that were, you know, SwapBots with Bitcoin for fuel and with the tokens that actually represent the cards that they're selling in game, they would set prices either in dollars or in cryptocurrency and the cryptocurrency price, you know, it all be converted into Bitcoin or other token prices. And then anytime somebody sent a transaction to that bot and it fit within the parameters and the pricing and stuff like that, then it would either uh, vend them the token that they purchased or if there was an inventory available or something else like that, it would automatically refund the user. So we took kind of early concepts like that back in the days when we thought everything would be on the blockchain and did that, right? So it has a front end, right? It has like this visual essentially calculator that it walks you through and it looks like it's actually like a web app. But in the background, what's actually happening is that there's no connection between the front end that the user is using in order to interact and the actual back end. It's just that like the front end is guessing what the back end, you know, whether the back end is connected to the particular user that's up front. So all sorts of weird stuff like that. But that's that's my point is that like all of the things that we're used to having, whether it be exchanges to, you know, just like e-commerce systems and everything else, none of that existed when it came to tokens. And it's just now starting to exist for Ethereum. But even there, you know, the stuff that we created on Counterparty and are now adopting to Ethereum, just like there's so much work to do on the infrastructure side once you have the token. The token becomes the easy part and everything else is hard. So what's been the experience of of building the tokenly business? Have you gotten some early adopters, some users of the tokenly service and how does it compare to the ICO boom that has happened with these other token projects? We've always been very interested in experimenting kind of to the maximum degree possible, but uh, have also been very conservative in terms of our risk taking on the legal side of things. So early on, we actually did help some of the early uh, ICOs, even to you know 2017 in January, we helped Vinnie Lingham's project, uh, the Augmenters, uh, Augmented Reality Game, raised about a million dollars with our uh, e-commerce tools. And so it's interesting. So I started Tokenly almost four years ago at this point, and uh, we initially self-funded. And then in 2016, we did a seed round on Bank to the Future and raised total $500,000 split between uh, VC and community support that came from uh, listeners of LTB mostly. So that was how much we've raised. Because of the way cryptocurrency worked during the initial part where we had self-funded, the amount of money that we actually had to work with went down because the price of Bitcoin went down and we had been dumb enough to keep it all in Bitcoin. But this time we were super conservative managing our funds. We still kept some of it in Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. And that managed to actually just about double the amount of runway that we have. So even now, like it's funny, you know, in terms of significant revenues, there really haven't been that many, but we've managed our finances well enough and ridden the waves well enough that we really haven't ever felt like we we're under substantial financial pressure 
um, even though we didn't have a lot going on. I think in total, we've generated about $150,000 worth of revenue in the last 18 months or something. But for the most part, we've been in just R&D mode, just building and trying to solve as many of the problems as we could, working with early customers and uh, early types of users. We found the business development cycle to be pretty complex, though. And a lot of times what we would run into is that we were so early that the people who we were working with and trying to help wanted to do everything themselves, even if it was substantially to the detriment of their project. We tried to create too complete a situation too early on with too little resources, and it would have been much better in hindsight to have just focused on one or two products and gone from that. So as of about a year ago, that's what we've been doing. We first focused on the Token FM product and brought that to launch in October of last year. And in the final legal review with our lawyers, discovered that we had two kind of uh, show-stopping issues, one on the token creation side, because the big issues we've seen really have nothing to do with technology. They have everything to do with user behavior and then also to a limited degree to do with kind of the current legal uncertainty that's in the air. As far as user behavior goes, the real thing that makes most applications out there that are actually attempted to get users now a complete non-starter is that they can't support users who don't have cryptocurrency. And that seems like a no-brainer, right? It's like, well, to use a cryptocurrency application, you have to have some cryptocurrency. But it's a gigantic problem because it's still actually really hard for people who, you know, don't trade on Forex markets and things like that to actually not just get it, but to even want to get it. Like there's several leaps that have to happen before you get there. So in our solution, we made it so that even though the system was entirely token backed in terms of uh, the ownership model and things like that, it was still possible for someone who never set up a wallet to actually, you know, engage with the product and not just engage with the product, but even engage with tokens. They just can't take possession of them. They still they remain seated in a, a multi-sig escrow account, basically. But because we had created so complete a solution that actually helped people who didn't have cryptocurrency to do this, we found ourselves in an awkward situation where we couldn't actually launch the product because we were in too many places at once and we had liability in the event that somebody creating a token was charged with fraud. And then there were other issues that came up as well. Again, like it was not at all clear in the early days that all ICOs were going to be illegal. And increasingly since August of last year, it has become apparent that all ICOs that don't follow the rules of securities law are going to be considered illegal, at least in the, in the United States. So I've spent a lot of time working on both first a legal ICO in support of our products and then, sorry, uh, first a traditional ICO in support of our products and then uh, the last five months on a uh, legal ICO using the Reg D exemption. And I can tell you that the whole thing is a trap. <laughs> <laughs> the whole ICO thing is such a trap. Like people, it's not at all obvious from the outside looking in, but there's so many unknowns. And again, it's one of those situations where there are no best practices. There are just first practices, but because those first practices in some cases have worked, like they're perceived as best practices. And so people follow them. So on the one hand, I'm really glad that we haven't gone down the rabbit hole of actually launching an ICO ourselves because of all those risks and the continued nonsense. It looks like it's going to be the case even on the legal side. But I mean, you want to talk about a tragedy. I think that's a tragedy right there is the number of people who have exposed themselves to a huge amount of risk that they did not understand in which the US government did not do a good job of explaining at all and still does. And still, they're not actually saying the truth. They're just saying, well, well, these things are probably in every wait, wait, circumstance. Wait. So, so, but yeah. but to be, to be clear, so you're saying that 
these people who are wiping their tears with the hundreds of millions of dollars they've raised in their ICO, like we should have sympathy for them? Because I mean... I'm saying that I have sympathy for them as an entrepreneur who looked for the most efficient ways to fundraise for my company and was not fooled by that only because I dropped a ridiculous amount of money on lawyers and diligence. That's the reality, is that if you're a company going into an ICO and you have less than $250,000 to actually spend on it, you are going in dramatically underprepared. And maybe it's different now, but six months ago when we were looking at it, that risk was not apparent. So I understand it's easy to say, oh, well, these people you know, raised all this money, you know, boohoo for them. But at the same time, they raised that money because it looked like it was a fair way to raise it, right? It looked like that was what the market opportunity was. And again, like as an entrepreneur, I just have a really hard time faulting people for following the incentives in these situations. I'm way more risk averse than most. And it almost got me. Well, but if we trace the incentives, what we have with many of these ICO products is something that you could build for nearly zero dollars, raising $25 million before they have anything built. And like, if you are capable of raising $25 million when a corresponding product in the Web 2.0 market would not be able to raise a penny, even in the, the, satur- the, the, the money-saturated markets of Silicon Valley... You know, if you wouldn't be able to raise a hundred thousand dollar pre-seed round in Silicon Valley, and yet you can raise twenty-five million dollars with a token sale, I think that kind of if you're going to succeed as an entrepreneur, you need to have some bearing on reality as it maps to situations that are ostensibly unclear today. And in this case, the ostensibly unclear variable was how is the government going to perceive these ICOs? And if you're getting ready to raise $25 million, I'm sorry, but the onus is on you to be responsible. I'm sympathetic too, honestly, because I've talked to some of these companies and I, I feel kind of bad for them because they have stumbled into this situation. But I do also think that there was a, a sense of short-term greed with the way that they've structured, for example, their vesting schedule. Oh, Oh, we've got a two-year vesting schedule for our tokens. Really? You're going to build a successful product that creates a token economy that is justified for you to be exiting this project in two years. And really, like, it's perfectly fine for you to do that because the investors who, who shell out cash for this are going to understand those vesting schedules. I mean, I have sympathy, but it is limited. I can totally understand that. You know, it's funny... The reason why, so, <laughs> so I was one of the first people to get circulated the Ethereum uh, white paper, and I was a, a kind of squeaky wheel in the early Skype channels, and I actually wound up getting kicked out of the chat because I disagreed so vehemently with the idea that there would be founder allocations, um, and I was actually potentially up for a founder allocation. Like I said, I was quite interested in the project and had been involved, but I was maintaining my neutrality on it broadly. And that was a huge point of contention back then, because at the time we called them pre-mines. At the time, they were perceived to be a very negative part of the kind of overall ecosystem and sort of a perversion of the market forces that were normally at work with these things. But Ethereum worked. (laughs) 
<laughs> so like I was wrong, not necessarily I was wrong about like the morals of the thing, but I was wrong in terms of the market's willingness to accept it. And I think that it, again, is an indication that the early community that we saw around this stuff had a different set of ideals and a different set of important you know, principles compared to the people who would later come after the fact. And everything we're seeing now in terms of these ICOs, they're all based off the quote unquote best practice that was the Ethereum sale, right? So now it's just a question. It's not a question of whether or not there's a pre-mine. It's a question, how much is the pre-mine, right? Like, is it even possible to get any of the token if you're not spending money or a founder, right? Like, those are questions that were never a thing at all until we saw Ethereum not just do this, but then go on to succeed at appreciating so much. So again, if the rules are clear, then I agree with you. But I can tell you, having spent a stupid amount of money on you know legal in the last year, that the rules are not clear. And many of the people who went down that path paid lawyers, and those lawyers told them that this will be fine if you say these things. And there were multiple approaches for this. Some of the best, you know, best projects that actually were out there that spent millions of dollars on legal and created their own new entire frameworks for why this was okay. At the end of the day, none of it was okay. At the end of the day, if you raise money for, you know, a project using a token, then it is a security in the eyes of the law. And so again, like that would have been super easy to say for the SEC. That's all they had to say. That's all anybody had to say. They just had to say that. But nobody said it. Instead, it's like been all this kind of like intuition about it and like, let's read the tea leaves based on, you know, this particular interpretation relative to this court case and blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, again, I, I, I think we can move on, but I actually have a surprising amount of sympathy <laughs> as someone who has watched. Uh, of course, the other problem about all of this is that valuations in this space are are higher if there is no product, right? Like in, in venture capital, a lot of times the worst thing that you can have as a company seeking it is revenue. Because if you have revenue, well, that's quantifiable. And if you have revenue, well, we can chart that and we can look at your projections and we can look at your growth history and stuff like that. But if you have none of that, <laughs> then it's all just based on projections and it's based on kind of these hand wavy figures. And so that in a nutshell is the ICO boom. It's projects that are very poorly explained because it is to the benefit of the project's fundraising capabilities to do so. And then really it's just about trying to kind of start that virtuous cycle of excitement leading to interest, leading to more excitement, leading to more interest and then bam, you've raised $250 million, right? Like we've seen this happen over and over again. No, 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 no. I mean, I mean, yes, you can raise money for products that way, but the classic way of raising money is you say, here is a product, we have some traction, we have some monetization or indication that we can achieve monetization. We would like to raise some money to accelerate that process and to bring on resources, employees that will help us <laughs> with that pathway. Like, like the there difference are people is with- you're talking about the real world and I'm talking about ICOs. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> no, but I mean, seriously, that it, they're just different worlds. But think about it. Why are they different? There's one simple reason, and it's important. It's Token that there liquidity. are rules. There, there, no, it's not, it doesn't have to do with liquidity. It has to do with the fact that there are rules around fundraising that make it so you can't offer fundraising opportunities to investors that don't have certain means and levels of sophistication called accredited investors. In some ways, those are bad because they limit access for people who don't have that accredited status to access things that could be lucrative investors. But the reason why those laws exist, at least in theory, is because those are people who can afford to lose the money if everything goes pear-shaped. 
Whereas people who you know don't have that many that much in terms of resources don't have the ability to assess in the same way. Uh, you know, they're not really making kind of a fair thing. So if you look at ICOs, what's the difference? It's that there are no restrictions in terms of who actually gets in. And recently, we've seen restrictions on U.S. citizens because there is legitimate concern about this. But the fact of the matter remains that these projects are so easy to raise money, not because they you know presented it in any particular way, but because they can invite money from everybody and they don't need to. I mean, like I. Like I can't even I literally can't even show you the ICO that we prepared that is legal because I would need to have you go through. I think it's a nine page pre accreditation format that has you just it's like it's like the same thing as getting audited, basically. Right. That you need to prove to me before I can even tell you what I want you to give me money for. So that friction is not about cryptocurrency. It's not about ICOs. It's about the way that fundraising happens everywhere except for that unregulated space. And so because of that, the fact that it has none of those restrictions makes it seem really, really appealing. But in reality, the legal requirement for it remains there regardless of what the format for the structure is, right? Like you could sell a security that is based on bananas and that would still be a security, right? And the, the, you go back to Howie and the orange groves, and it's the same thing. It's like the big case that they use to determine whether something is a security is based on these land investment deals where people were ostensibly investing in oranges or in orange groves, but really it was just an investment in the money that would be made from the orange grove. So it's the same thing here. It's like, anyways, I could go on. You can tell this is a pet peeve. It's, you know, I'm on the one hand frustrated because I very much have seen projects that have spent so much less work, taken one little concept of an idea that we've taken all the way to completion and raise exponentially more money than we know it would need to be successful. You know, but at the same time, the fact that, again, this is not at all clear on the onset and even with paying lawyers, it still takes a ridiculous amount of time. It just makes me very frankly sympathetic for the nonsense that is to come because there is nonsense to come. All right, here's my take. And I know we're going down the rabbit hole here, but the debate is basically who are we allocating sympathy towards? I actually allocate sympathy towards the SEC, and I am sympathetic specifically to the length of time they have taken to provide clarity to this situation. And my reason for that is twofold. So one, the downside of letting people do these ICOs and have it be laissez-faire, create your token, there's no penalty, grandma buys it, Todd, the 13-year-old with some spare bar mitzvah money can buy it. Allowing that kind of situation, the, the downside of that is what happened in the 1920s when uh, mom and pop were buying worthless stocks because it was trendy to do that. Or I believe there was the Wolf of Wall Street era, which I think was like late 80s where, where this kind of miscreant behavior happened once again. So we have cases in the past where this kind of stuff has happened and had real problems. The positive side of that is that people should be aware of the risks of things that they wager on. I played poker at a very young age, and I developed some scar tissue from that. I made a whole lot of financial mistakes early on, and I'm glad that I was exposed to a world where I could make financial mistakes. That's one thing that makes me Actually, I'm a bit of a crazed libertarian when it comes to gambling ages. I think kids should be allowed to and encouraged to gamble because I think it allows you to build skills around risk tolerance and some psychological scar tissue. But you have to admit there's also kids that develop gambling addictions. And and it, it's one of these things that's kind of like, it's like internet privacy. It's It's not this 
area where we can just say one extreme or the other is the correct choice. We need some prudence. We need debate. We need time to establish rules around these things if we're going to establish rules. And I think that's what the SEC was doing. They just took their time and I don't know. I mean, I guess we're beating a dead horse at this point, but I just I wanted to present that framework for listeners who are less familiar with this. This is a difficult situation for everyone. I, there's no question about that. This is a difficult situation, but I would be more sympathetic to that viewpoint if the SEC was making new rules, right? Like if they were creating rules that were specifically dealing with this area, then that would be one thing, but they're not. They're just saying the rules that have been on the books since 1933, and I believe there's another batch in the 70s that just apply to securities, they just apply. And that might not seem like it matters, but I'm selfishly interested in clarity in this that is closer to real clarity rather than hand wavy, you know, here's some guidance. Uh, And that's because by making it unclear how tokens are going to be treated, we have effectively forbidden any tokens that are not security. What has the SEC said? By the way, I probably shouldn't even be talking on this because I I, I don't even know what the SEC has clarified. I'm sure you'd be a better source of information on this. They've clarified. I mean, it depends on when you talk about it. If you look at the most recent set of guidance that they, or not guidance, but the recent set of testimony, basically they've said that everything that looks like an ICO looks like a security. So that's, again, if they had said that a year ago, six months ago, if they had said that in the Dow report where they said tokens can sometimes be considered securities. And then they also had this intentional vagueness in it because they didn't associate the same sort of thing with Ethereum, even though Ethereum had exactly the same sort of funding genesis, it just didn't blow up. So there's some inconsistency in the way that they've been presenting it as well. But I mean, again, like everybody has an opinion, right? And everybody's kind of talking their own book. And like, that's the whole problem is that this is undecided. And so during the kind of point in time that we are now where it's undecided, but it's obviously risky, it makes it basically impossible to do things that use tokens, but aren't securities. And that again, brings me back to the token FM product that we created, which uh, essentially allows artists to create uh, coins, tokens that represent albums worth of music. So they are effectively the uh, token equivalent of a CD and they have the same characteristics. I can give you the CD, you know, I can give you the token and then you can listen to the music and I can't listen to the music that's on it during that time. You know, and so on. So stuff like that does not have a speculative use case. Stuff like that has utility. And because of kind of the work that's been going on in Wyoming with regards to utility tokens, maybe that gets clarified. But again, then you have states fighting the feds. So we just need this to be cleared up. And all they need to say, and when I say they, I mean the SEC or whoever else, they just need to say things that are securities are securities. Things that aren't securities aren't securities. It doesn't matter if you use a token or you use a banana peel or you use a piece of paper or you use a digital signature in a brokerage. It's it's the, the nature of the thing rather than it's the vehicle that delivers the thing. All right. I got one more question. We got to wrap up, but this, was, this has been a great conversation. Tell me something about cryptocurrencies that you believe most people in technology misunderstand. I think that uh, one of probably the most commonly, and there are different opinions on this too, so I'm not saying mine is the opinion, but it is a opinion. The decentralization question. When we're looking at cryptocurrencies, there are all sorts of different metrics by which you can measure decentralization. And depending on kind of what your ideological viewpoint is in how cryptocurrency should develop, how they should be used, you have sort of a different set of things that you prefer versus other things that other people prefer. Um, It's not that any of them are right or wrong. It's just that, again, we look for different things. And decentralization is a really, really broad metric that applies to lots of things. I read an article a couple of months ago, I guess. I forget who by 
that talked about how the way we should be thinking about decentralization is in terms of centralized points of failure. So a decentralized system is one that's robust to you know multiple failures within the network. It can also be distributed, but decentralized really has to do with if you take out one node, what happens to the rest of the network? Does any of the functionality drop away? Are there any problems that emerge because that one guy left? And so when you start thinking about it like that, it becomes obvious that this is an ecosystem play, right? This is a thing where you don't want one anything for anything. You want to have in every single area, whether you're talking about businesses or miners or developers or whatever, you want to have as many people as possible and as many different groups as possible with as many oppositional viewpoints as possible, because it means that any of them can go away and the fight remains. And it's that fight itself that actually maintains consensus because it's attacks against consensus that actually make us care about it. So the reactionary kind of position in blockchain is the correct one because we see what's coming, we react to it, and then the vast majority of people almost always are you know, against whatever the change is unless it's actively a good change, and uh, then it actually gets pushed in. So decentralization is a really important point. You could talk about it lots of different ways, but for me, it's about centralized points of failure or the lack thereof. Adam B. Levine, thanks for coming on the show. It's been great. Thanks, Jeffrey. Wow. 